hello, and welcome to Critical Faith, a podcast sponsored by the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, Ontario. ICS is a school for graduate studies in philosophy, and on our podcast we hear from researchers, activists, educators, and students trying to think through what makes faith such a critical component of so many of our lives. We also let ourselves be troubled by some hard questions about our own traditions, spiritualities, and communities. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Natasha Duquette, a scholar currently working at Tyndale University here in Toronto. Earlier this year, and before we started this podcast, Dr. Duquette came to give a talk of faith and scholarship, highlighting some of the intersections between her life of faith and her academic work. There were so many moments of her talk which resonated with me, so I delved into some of her writing and asked her to come back and talk with me. Her work is most broadly involved with 18th and 19th century aesthetics, literature, and biblical hermeneutics, and more specifically with female authors of that period who tried to expand their contemporary aesthetic norms to account for female experience of both daily and spiritual life. We will talk most about her new book, Veiled Intent, Dissenting Women's Aesthetic Approach to Biblical Interpretation, which came out in 2016 from Whitfinstock Publishers. Though the unshaken serenity of Schimmelpenny's contemplative sublime is akin to what Kant terms quiet wonder of the noble sublime, her idea of a calm and steady feminine fortitude or dauntlessness is nowhere found in Kant's writing. Kant's definition of the noble sublime, as distinguished from the terrifying sublime, does eventually include women's capacity for wisdom, as well as friendship but he does not emphasize women's capacity for moral strength and dauntlessness like Bailey and Schimmelpenny do. Nor does Kant engage with the poetic structure of Hebrew scripture or the Christological imagery of the Gospels in his search for examples of sublimity. So, Natasha, this is a fun question to ask uh, interviewees. What are you reading these days? Are you doing a lot of reading for course preparation? Are you uh, starting to read some more uh, of interest personal books to you now that Christmas is approaching? Yes, Yes, I'm doing both. So um, I'm reading a book uh, called Theological Aesthetics, God in Imagination, Beauty and Art by a man named Richard and it's because that's the intro book for my aesthetics course that I will teach next semester. And it's a fascinating book. It's, he's very modest, saying he's just giving a very general and basic introduction to the field of aesthetics and theological aesthetics specifically. But it's generating lots of ideas for me for the first couple of weeks of class. And then I'm also reading an autobiography. So this is my non, this is not for teaching at all. I'm reading an autobiography of a woman named St. Faustina Kowalska, who lived in early 21st century Poland. And this is a diary. It's very everyday. Diary of um, everyday life of a nun and leading up to her vows. And so the point that I've got in the book is where she's taking her vows. And it's really amazing and humbling to read and it's really making me think about how I live my everyday life and kind of the commitments I have in life and um, maybe some of the excesses in my life because she lives so simply so it's very convicting but um, very gentle and beautiful at the same time 
So that is the diary of St. Faustina Kowalski. Purely uh, relaxation. I started reading it as relaxation, but then I'm like, whoa, I'm really being very ethically yeah. convicted by this yeah. woman and her story. So yes. often I find that I'll start reading something for personal interest and then it'll end up working its way into my scholarship, yes. you know, three or four months later that it's kind of sat in my subconscious for a while and then ends up, you know, working yes. its way in. In this book, she's using the word recollection a lot in a way that's very intriguing to me from the perspective of the contemplative sublime and of memory and um, meditation even in a in an intellectual way yeah it's intellectual as well as spiritual this idea of recollection mm -hmm. so i'll be looking for your book on her in yeah. a year year and a half time <laughs> yeah. okay so the truth is that i am interested in these cistercian nuns of 17th century france it's not saint faustina kowalska but i can see that she's in that you can see the tradition going from 17th century of course earlier even to the medieval period right up to early 21st century so it is not disconnected. It's, it's impossible to disconnect it. Yes. Indeed, yeah. Mm -hmm. When you came earlier this year to give your faith and scholarship talk, mm -hmm. uh, I was just so delighted because of the number of commonalities that mm -hmm. I felt in our, mm -hmm. our lives and our mm -hmm. academic interests. So we'll spend time in Alberta mm -hmm. uh, in some formative years, uh, both this fascination with aesthetics, especially in Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. We'll study at a Queen's University mm -hmm. at various times, and mm -hmm. we're heavily involved with a campus ministry there. Uh, I ended up living in the house where that Bible study took place for a few years. Uh, and this uh, ecumenical and kind of cross-denominational uh, interest that we, yes. that we both have. So I spent the entire time when you were giving your talk just trying to make meaningful eye contact with a friend of mine across the room. And just to say, it's she's just like me. She's just like me. We have such overlap. So I was really, really pleased when you said that you would uh, come and record a little bit of that. You know, what's interesting is that academics are not usually invited to bring their personal life into a presentation about their research, but the whole ICS um, Faith and Scholarship series is, that's the whole purpose of it is, can you tell us your intellectual journey and interweave it with your spiritual journey so i was really self-conscious to bring up things like the geneva fellowship bible study i, I hesitated to do that mm -hmm. so that's ironic to me that it spoke to you so much yeah mm -hmm. yeah that's been one of the features of studying here as a female academic mm -hmm. is that mm -hmm. i don't have to fit into this mold of what i think a female mm -hmm. academic mm -hmm. uh, in a philosophical graduate institution mm -hmm. should look like um, and if I want to process the material that we're studying differently from my counterparts, I'm entirely welcome to do that. And it, we're encouraged to bring in those spiritual insights into it. It's not something we kind of have to bracket off from yeah, the yeah. research we're doing. Right. That's That was liberating for me. And it's a kind of hospitality that I experienced here. And I can hear that you've experienced that too. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Yeah, it's been a wonderful time for me. Can you tell us a bit about what you're currently doing? I understand that you're doing some teaching and you've moved into an administrative job as well. Yeah, I have been um, teaching, of course, my Jane Austen course. I've taught it twice in um, the three and a half years that I've been here. But um, I just finished up a course on 18th century satire, which I really love teaching. And I hadn't had a chance to teach it for about six years. So I um, kind of reinvigorated that course and the students were writing um, their own 
social satire in heroic couplets and imitation of Pope and Swift. Wow. And they, yeah, they did very good work. And at first they were baffled by the heroic couplet form, but then the very restrictions of the form and the iambic meter produced better writing from them. It was mm-hmm. beautiful and uh, exciting to see them do that. And then I will have my aesthetics course for the philosophy department, um, which kindly allows me to teach aesthetics because the um, philosophers at Tyndale University College, where I work, they um, they do not want, uh, nor would they enjoy teaching aesthetics. <laughs> so they're happy to have me teach this course, and it's a huge, there's a huge enrollment in it because um, they took away the prerequisite of critical reasoning to allow non-philosophy students to take aesthetics. Mm-hmm. So it's a big and interdisciplinary group of students, but I'm excited about that to see how that works out. Um, not that you don't use critical reasoning and aesthetics, but uh, I felt it was less of an absolute uh, necessity. It's opened students. up access to the course. Yeah, yeah. It's really wonderful. Yeah, and then of course I serve as associate dean, so I've been doing program development in French visual arts, and now international development. So I, my whole life has been very interdisciplinary the right. whole time I've been there. Mm-hmm. So there is a large section of your scholarship which focuses on Jane Austen specifically and then also other female authors of the same period. Uh, is this kind of what pulled you into a scholarship initially? That's a really big question. Okay, so there's two parts to that question. The women writers and the time period of the late 18th and early 19th century. So, uh, my original pull into that time period was actually William Wordsworth, who I was reading at about the age of 11, 12, memorizing his poems by the age of 13. So, it actually began with Wordsworth, my interest in this period. And that connects back to Immanuel Kant. Samuel Taylor Coleridge spent time in Germany. He was reading Immanuel Kant, and then these Kantian ideas kind of come via Coleridge into Wordsworth's poetry. So in a way, I was imbibing um, this German philosophy via Wordsworth as a fairly young person. So first, I was interested in what's called the Romantic period of British literature. Um, I was also reading Charlotte Bronte at that same time, like 10, 11, and there's a lot of that same romanticism in Bronte. Um, then it was in university that I became more interested in women writers specifically. So as an undergrad at University of Alberta, I took a course. It was just called Women Writers. Sounds simple, but it was very um, life-changing for me at the time to read a course where we're um, examining women writers and then in dialogue with each other. So that idea of gathering a group of women writers together, which is what I've done in my book, I think it started with that course. I was about 20 years old when I took that course. And then again, um, Charlotte Bronte and Jane Eyre was in there, but also with um, White Sargasso Sea and uh, Virginia Woolf. We read Toni Morrison's Beloved in that course. It was a very good course. I think reading Beloved was when I first started thinking about race and history of slavery as well so it was all already there in kind of a nascent form um then it wasn't until i was a graduate student that i really started reading jane austen so as an undergrad in first year when i was 18 we we read started reading i started reading prime prejudice we were supposed to read the whole novel but i didn't like i didn't like jane austen when i first started prime prejudice it might have been the way it was taught to me as an 18 year old and then as a graduate student i was the teaching assistant for romanticism courses. And at that point, 
it was in the 90s, mid to late 90s, um, people were starting to include women writers in romanticism courses instead of the big five, which would be uh, William Blake, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Shelley, Keats. So it would only be those five writers. And now suddenly people would add Anne Mansfield Park or Anne Sense and Sensibility. Those are the two that would be taught. So, yeah, so I came to Austin via, it would usually be at the end of romanticism course. So looking at her through the lens of romanticism. And that's what made me start appreciating her. And I think seeing some of the philosophy in her work, also the way that she's treating landscape, it came from uh, reading her after a whole semester with the romantic poets. Um, okay, and then when I was first teaching, I met, uh, or I re I rekindled my connection with Juliet McMaster, a Jane Austen scholar, who I had met as a master's student uh, once or twice. But then I really got to know her when I was first teaching, and she was one of the founders of the Jane Austen Society of North America, and so she kind of nudged me into participation with JASNA, which is what led to Jane Austen and the Arts, the essay collection that I co-edited with Elizabeth Lenko. So I have to I have to thank Juliet McMaster for really solidifying my interest in Austen, a woman named Daphne Reed, who taught me in the Women Writers course at University of Alberta, and then I have to confess my own mother, who introduced me to William Wordsworth and Charlotte Bonte. So there's this, like, there's, there's a, and that's what I'm doing in my book. I'm tracing these patterns of influence between uh, women thinkers and writers, and that same pattern was in my own life. So, um, yeah, and then one of the first courses that I taught, it was only as a part-time instructor, but was at Trenton University. It was a course called The Age of Sensibility. And then I imitated those romanticism courses I'd been the teaching assistant for in that we looked at the 18th century poets and playwrights of sensibility. And then I placed sense and sensibility at the end of the course as a way of reflecting back on the age of sensibility. And that's from those lectures that I wrote for teaching at Trent came my first articles on Jane Austen. And then from those articles came the book. Yeah, teaching and and research, especially with um, Jane Austen, are very closely connected. So last year you published a monograph, Veiled Intent, Dissenting Women's Aesthetic Approach to Biblical Interpretation, and that is what I would like to focus our discussion on today. Could you introduce the book to us? Okay. Um, the book is really about how did women um, find their voice in biblical interpreta- interpretation by engaging with the debate about the sublime and the beautiful in the 18th century, and then through that engagement, how did they trouble the gendered stereotypes that were underlying these definitions of the sublime and the beautiful? And then to come back to their scriptural analysis, how did they trouble those stereotypes through deployment of their biblical interpretation and through biblical sources? Yeah, and once they had done that and formulated their ideas, what tactics did they use to spread those ideas into uh, the public sphere when people may have, and actually did, really resist? Really, uh, with two of them, especially Anna Barbold and Helen Wright Williams, people really did resist what they had to say and their perspectives. So, so how did they find their voice? But then once they had done that, given the fact that their fresh or different views may have um, 
startled or upset people? How did they ensure that their voice was in the public sphere of their own time, but then preserved for posterity for others to to still hear and benefit from today? <laughs> synopsis yeah. mm-hmm. several of these women there are explicit connections between their work you're looking at a kind of a cloud of writers and poets mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the 18th century early 19th century mm. i've got a good grasp on the mm-hmm. history and culture of jane austen yeah. i'm less familiar with yeah. the dissenters yes yeah. uh, and you mentioned that the dissenters mm. open up a culture in which it's possible for women to do That's this work true. but then are very resentful of the uh answers or um mm-hmm. uh, or the answers that they come to the discoveries that they make in the type of biblical hermeneutics that they end up doing is yeah. you know kind of offensive to the academic to the system that, that produced allowed them, them yeah that allowed them to that is kind of the work. paradox yeah. okay so there's so many things coming to my mind one i'll start with a with a um, parallel to jane austen which is um, jane austen and her sister went and studied with a wife of an oxford professor so women could not enroll or gain a degree from Oxford at this time, but um, a clergyman like Jane Austen's father would want his daughters to be educated so that he could kind of send them into proximity to Oxford and um, it was would have been viewed as more proper for them to study with a woman who is connected to an Oxford professor. So this was a very private, though you could think of um, Jane Austen and her sister being in the private home of this woman. But with the dissenters, the dissenters started their own colleges because um, they were largely Presbyterian, but there were Baptist versions of this. There were Congregationalists. They started their own colleges because at this time in the 18th century, you had to receive communion in the Church of England and be a member of the Church of England to attend Oxford or Cambridge. So the dissenters, to, to train their own clergymen, um, let's say a Presbyterian clergyman, they started their own colleges. And um, one of the women in my book, Anna Barbold, her father taught at one of those colleges. So Barbold, um, and because they were small and close-knit communities compared to something like Oxford or Cambridge, Barbold was in the milieu of this community and kind of mixing with the young men who were preparing to be clergymen, Presbyterian ministers. Um, and I just have a sense that she was much more in the mix then Jane Austen and Cassandra Austen studying in a pri- privately in a woman's home who was kind of tangentially connected to Oxford. Um, it's because Barbald's father was was a professor. I think that she was really in the fray. So I would put it instead of kind of you know hidden away studying quietly. But then, as a result, she observed the debates, the theological debates, and then as a fairly young woman in one of her first publications, Thoughts on the Devotional Taste, she critiqued the mode of debate at um, a place called Warrington Academy, which was one of these dissenting academies. And then again, because it was such a close-knit community, her niece, Lucy Aiken, took her to task and said that she was being, she was engaging, she was engaged, she was treading too close to kind of critical analysis of the Presbyterian dissenting culture of Warrington Academy. She 
she thought that they were making things uh, so hyperlogical in their debates that it was becoming cold and uh, detached from God and detached from the everyday lives of what she called common Christians. And in a way, if you think that about these young men were preparing to serve in the church, and here she's saying their debates are making them distanced from the very communities that they're to serve. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that is a, a fairly serious critique that she was posing. So, um, yeah, her niece took her to task for this. And her niece describes how the whole family, and I think the whole community, was appalled that she had written this. And it's, it sounds innocuous thoughts on the devotional taste it sounds not but again this is this idea of veiling this is her this is her title and then within that she has a philosophical critique of um, over abstraction when speaking of god so that it's disconnected from kind of embodied lived experience in a way in a way that is kind of um anti-incarnational she doesn't use that that's what she's implying and so of course they didn't like that so and then this is leading into one of your this is leading into a different topic but that's why her next book that she published was a book of children's actual children's devotional text called hymns and prose for children you can see she had riled people up and so she's okay now i will publish a text for children i know that there's probably more behind that in fact she and her husband has started a school for boys so she's writing the children's literature to uh, use in the classroom but i think it was also a very safe genre for her Mm -hmm. after she'd upset her dissenting community but just one more point is that that community was vulnerable because they weren't the state church the church of england and so they were kind of marginal and that's why they would be sensitive to this sort of critique even when it's coming from within I think there is a point that you made in the chapter on Marianne Schimmelpenning, uh, where she says something like, you might be able to quote Rousseau and argue your way really well in one of these colleges, but if you do it without scriptural literacy and without um, any connection to the life of the community, then you aren't being a good female academic, that you've yeah. missed out on something. Yeah. So Schimmel Penning, she says that it's the 1820s by the time that Schimmel Penning says that. So Barbold is writing this in the um, 1770s, and then Schimmel Penning picks up this point in the 1820s. But by that point, more women were being educated. So Schimmel Penning actually says it's the young, the young women of our culture who are quoting Rousseau to be fashionable, but don't know the scripture, don't don't are not grounded. Um, in theology or um, biblical knowledge. So it's interesting, that's the shift, is that Barbald is critiquing the young men enrolled at Warrington Academy, but Schimmelpenning by the 1820s is saying the young women are kind of imitating this. Yes, um, yeah, in a, in a fashionable way. It's a little bit of a different critique, because mm-hmm. she's saying they quote Rousseau to be um, kind of fashionably French and, and philosophical. Cool. It's interesting. It's something that we that we should all think about today. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It it struck me a little bit when I read it. I was like, oh no. <laughs> it doesn't matter how good I am at scholarship or how many philosophers I can just, you know, know and have them ready at the tip of my tongue for, yeah. you know, the opportune moment if uh if it's not done with if it's not done with love or if yeah. it's uh not partnered with uh my investment in 
uh, a biblical imaginary at the same time. Yes, that is what she's saying. There's a lot of spunk and a lot of graciousness at the same time in all of these women. Yeah, she does because she integrates a lot of philosophy into her own work. So she's not saying, and same with Barbell, she says, um, I'm not critiquing philosophy per se, but a type of philosophical disputatiousness that it becomes more about the ego I think and and proving you're right than seeking truth that's what she's saying (laughs) so I'd like to talk at length about Marianne Schimmelpenning and Anna Barbald could you introduce us to some of the other characters in the book there's a fascinating connection here with the abolition movement which is of course at the heart of the theology of the dissenters and how a lot of really, really good theology that the abolition movement was hidden or veiled in the language used in your book in these types of poetry and hymns. I'll just start with a brief mention of a book um, that has already come up, which is that Hymns Imposed for Children. Even the Hymns Imposed for Children, published by um, Anna Barbald in the 1780s, has anti-slavery imagery within it. So there's a hymn where she says, um, children, imagine a cottage, and then imagine the land around the cottage, and then imagine the country around that land, and now imagine the whole globe. She's trying to instill like an international consciousness in the children through these little devotional hymns and prose. And then um, she has this image of an African woman crying over her ailing child, and she says, um, you might feel like no one sees you, but God sees you. And I feel like that's a reference to Hagar in Genesis, um, in the wilderness. And um, So here's this anti-slavery imagery, 1781 in hymns and prose for children but what led up i think what paved the way for that and also for Hellmeyer williams um gold on the bill lately passed for regulating the slave trade it's such a, a political title it's starting with this ode that was also published in the 1780s what paved the way for that was phyllis wheatley so phyllis wheatley was an african-american poet she had been brought from the west coast of Africa um, when she was around eight years old to Boston and then the family uh, who were her who had purchased her in Boston they recognized how bright she was so they raised her like one of their children and they educated her in Latin she knew Latin and um, she was reading Homer she was reading also Alexander Pope uh, then she wrote her own poetry and her poetry, um, poems on various subjects, religious and moral, it's a short but really fascinating collection of poetry, um, was not published in Boston. Interestingly, she traveled to London, and then her poems were published in London, 1773. So here you have a um, black woman, still legally a slave, publishing her collection of poems on subjects religious and moral in London in 1773, and then you have these dissenting women like Anna Barbold and Helen Meyer Williams writing their anti-slavery poetry approximately 10 years later. So it took it took a while, but I feel like Phyllis Wheatley was very um, pivotal because she then she was reviewed in all 
uh, the Monthly Review, uh, British Critic, all of the journals that would have reviewed all the poetry at the time. And the reviewers are saying, um, this is a woman of genius. And then they put pressure on the Wheatley family back in Boston to free her because they said, how could she, how could somebody so gifted and intelligent be held in legal slavery? And she did um, win her freedom through her poetry, which is amazing. And this must have motivated uh, people like Barbold and Williams. So I don't have evidence that they read Phil Sweetley. I don't have Williams writing a letter about Phil Sweetley's poems. That would be amazing if I could find something like that. But I'm sure Phil Sweetley was basically like a celebrity in London when she was there. She was taken to the Tower of London. She was kind of toured around. She was brought into um, the salon culture of writers in London at the time. So I think she was key in motivating other women to write their anti-slavery poetry but she doesn't write explicitly anti-slavery poetry herself as a slave she writes these poems about um, nature about scripture she writes a poem about david and goliath though and she says um, she describes david as small but valiant in his fight for his people and so i think she's identifying with david um, so you have to read in again. She's kind of, she, I would say, is veiling her um, anti-slavery arguments in her biblical interpretation. Um, she also talks about um, kind of variegation of of color and the beauty of all the different colors in creation. And so I think she's kind of writing about diversity of people at the same time in that nature. Yeah, so I'm really glad I included Wheatley in the book. Um, and yeah, and Helen Mary Williams, she was friends with Anna Barbald. Um, she was a bit more radical than Anna Barbald. In 1790, she actually moved to France when the French Revolution began. So um, as a single woman with her sister, who was also single, and then who married a Frenchman once they were in Paris, and their mother moved with them to Paris as well. So, um, Helen Mary Williams was then subsequently the most um, critiqued of all of the women that I write about in the book because of her support of the French Revolution. But Barbold, too, also supported the French Revolution. And so they were compared to Deborah and Yale. Barbold would be like Deborah, and Helen Mary Williams um, compared to Yale, um, partly because of her unfeminine. Behavior is how people perceived her. Um, but yeah, part of her feistiness, Helen Mary Williams, was her anti slavery poem, Ode on the Bill Lately Passed for Regulating the Slave Trade, which was a, it was um, before the abolition of the slave trade, which was 1807. So this is late 1780s, and a bill was passed that simply gave the slaves um, more space to um, breathe and to stretch themselves out in the folds of the slave ships. And so Helmer's poem is praising that bill because it's humane. But then at the end of her poem, she says, and now we must abolish slavery altogether. And she um, appeals to her British audience's nationalism, essentially saying we have to, we have to do this before the French. Wow. <laughs> she says this will, bring, uh, this will be the pride of England to do this. So she's doing that strategically especially because in a couple of years she would move to France. So she wasn't really an extreme nationalist at, at all, but she's trying to use whatever means she can to motivate her audience. 
Mm-hmm. Well, Those like... are such interesting stories. Mm-hmm. I'm just absolutely blown away uh, hearing about the ways in which there were these attempts, these underground, as it were, attempts mm-hmm. to uh, to modify the state of women at this time and the state of slaves and uh, the way in the in which this was done, because as the the power of the thesis that you have in this book is that there are these stories going on. We just have to know where to look for them. That's true. That is true. That's true because this is still in this period that used to be taught in English departments as if there were only five writers who were important. Yeah, it was the, the big five black big hole. guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the the second dark ages. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we, as there was a lot more going on. And um, William Blake, um, in his Songs of Innocence and Experience, has anti-slavery imagery in a poem called The Little Black Boy. And then William Wordsworth wrote a sonnet to a leader of a Haitian uh, slave rebellion. So there is the anti-slavery imagery is there in the big five of the Romantic period as well. But I think it's there to a greater extent in the in the women writers, actually, mm-hmm. I would say. And it seems as if they're so able to talk about it because the biblical hermeneutics that they're taking up have so much to do with maternal imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's and, true. Uh, the the feminine uh, aspects of love that they see present in God and not just in these mighty women in scripture. That's true. It's the mercy of God that they're writing about a lot and um, using uh, biblical metaphors for God's mercy. So... There's an aspect of justice to the anti-slavery uh, movement, but the women are, and the women do write about justice. However, they kind of supplement that with the idea of, of what is merciful. And um, Hannah Moore, she was an evangelical Anglican. She's also woven through my book. Um, she was not technically a dissenter because she was part of the Church of England, but she had connections to the dissenting women writers. And, um, in her anti-slavery poem, she has the image of a of a woman, an African woman, having her child torn for her from her, the child torn out of her arms, and she talks about this kind of sinews of the heart that is connecting the mother and the child, and how the sinews are torn. It's a very visceral image, but it is a very maternal image as well. Yeah, it's interesting. This is a way that they could be heard, and a way they could. Um, appeal to their audience's love, familial love for their own children. Um, but I think it's not just tactical. I think that they, they felt very passionately about this topic of women with um, ailing and dying children or women being separated from their children because of slavery. Mm-hmm. And it seems as if an attentiveness to this maternal uh image and uh, mercy and compassion that an attentiveness to these themes required them to go back to people like Burke and Kant and modify and reform their uh, aesthetic categories. You you speak of it mostly as a reformation of mm-hmm. these aesthetic categories and not an... Uh, it's not necessarily a breaking from because even when Helmar Williams first wrote her letters... Uh, written in France to a friend in England in 1790 when she was first in Paris she said Paris has all of Mr. Burke's sublime and London all of his beautiful so she she invokes his categories and she she's publishing this in the same year as his reflections on the revolution in France which was totally condemnatory of what was going on in Paris and um, the revolution itself but she hadn't read that yet so she's writing it 
at the same time as Burke. So yeah, no, I think that they have a respect for Burke's um, definition of the sublime, but viewed it as too restrictive. So so and too much of a dichotomy. So even with virtues, just um, with the idea of mercy, Burke would say um, wisdom, fortitude, and justice are sublime. Mercy, kindness, love are beautiful. But I think especially in the anti-slavery imagery, there's this um, kind of idea of a sublime mercy or a kind of a, the power of mercy or the power of, a, of maternal love, which comes up in um, William's paraphrase of Isaiah 49.15. talks about the power of a mother's love, but how God's love is even more um, powerful. So this is there's no room for a sublime mercy or sublime love in Burke. Mm-hmm. Just to make sure I've got my understanding of Burke, mm-hmm, or at least mm-hmm. the understanding that you have of Burke, mm-hmm. uh, right here, uh, this very rigid binary uh, in which the sublime and beauty are uh, split. Yeah, and it's quite a gendered, a gendered binary. So um, loving kindness and generosity and mercy are somehow feminine and like weaker than fortitude, wisdom, uh, sheer might which is masculine and stronger there's one little there's one there's a few um it's hard even for burke to maintain that dichotomy so as you read his philosophical inquiry into our ideas of the sublime and the beautiful there are points where it breaks down and one is around um sympathy for tragedy so so burke tries to do this with genres of literature tragedy is sublime comedy is beautiful but then he talks about our sympathy for a tragic circumstance and then with the sympathy you're having something like mercy or compassion edging into the sublime so he can't right. it's impossible for him and to similarly with uh, mm-hmm. aging women yes. he's not entirely sure what to do with them <laughs> yes as because their features women, change a little bit he says the beautiful is soft like a dove and is is gently curving and then he says women as they age become more angular and, and he's talking about wrinkles even they have right. they have right angles and lines on them and so then they don't fit his definition of beautiful anymore, but he can't quite bring himself to say they're sublime. And actually, um, Manuel Kant has more room for the sublimity mm-hmm. of women in his early work um, on the feelings of observations on the feelings of the beautiful and the sublime. That's 1763. So Burke's inquiry is um, 1757. We issued an expanded version, 1759. And then we have this early Immanuel Kant observations on the feelings of the beautiful and the sublime. And there he talks about a certain kind of dignity in an older woman that can partake of the sublime and can participate in wisdom. You can see Immanuel Kant is not um, stereotyping women as much and that yeah. in the early work mm-hmm. yeah um if i remember correctly he has like three types of yeah. sublimity in mm-hmm, that one mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. like a noble sublimity mm-hmm, is in there mm-hmm. um so with the dissenters one of the problems with this uh like terrible on the one mm-hmm. side and the beautiful on the other is mm-hmm. that even though burke allowed for something like a female friendship to be a type of mm-hmm. virtue he wouldn't really know uh how to talk about it if uh, friendship involved sacrifice on no, behalf of someone else no, or no, that's or right. even to death. That's right. There's no room for cur- for courage. No. And what is, where does something like uh, Christ's yeah. sacrifice fit into a... Yeah. So um, Yeats, uh, William Butler Yeats, 
talks about the terrible beauty of the cross, and I think Reinhold Niebuhr picks up on that image from Yeats. And so, yeah, there's also a theological dichotomy that happens with Burke in that in the, his book on the sublime and the beautiful that the Old Testament is somehow completely sublime because it's about justice and fear of God. And then he says with the New Testament and with Christ, it, it's all about love, and you and you lose that sublime aspect. But there's many. It's so easy to say. Um, no, there are many exceptions to that. What about the book of Revelation? That's in the New Testament. Mm. It is quite full of awe and terror, even. And then there are all these images of God's mercy and even maternal love in the Old Testament, which is what the dissenting women pick up mm. on. So that also is a dichotomy that is very difficult to maintain and is resting on a like a complete separation of the Old and the New Testament, which Schimmelpenning in particular refuses to maintain that kind of separation between those two. So Anna Barbald and Marianne Schimmelpenning are two of the women who uh, write treatises on Burke and Kant in their aesthetic categories. These themes are present in all of the women uh, mm. that you write about, but it's most explicit in the treatises yeah. of these two. Mm. It's true, because um, Schimmelpenning and Barbald were writing, as you're calling them, treatises or essays or more kind of analytical prose about the sublime and the beautiful. And then Barbel was, of course, also writing poetry. But um, yeah, it is in this work, Thoughts on, Devot on the Devotional Taste, that Barbel really, what she says is warm affection for God can be united with the sublimest ideas of his power or his infinity. And what she was worried about in the discourse at the Warrington Academy is that there was, again, this separation She's not mentioning Burke. She just sees it in the in the theological discourse, or even like a disdain that there was a disdain for war the warmth of affection because it was not intellectual, and so that we had to push everything into this very abstract idea of God. and And the more abstract it was, and the more re removed from the everyday or lives of common Christians, the more sublime it would be. And she says that's not at all the case. And then she uses the Psalms. And she says the Psalms themselves mix this warmth of affection, even familial affection for God, with the greatest reverence for his sublime majesty. And it doesn't have to be either mm -hmm. or. And so for me, that does trouble Burke's dichotomy. Even though she's not quoting Burke or referring to him, she's referring to these debates that she's witnessing about 10 years after Burke's book, though, so Burke would have been influencing the, her use of the word sublime. Yeah, so first she says, um, we can, she even talks about science. She talks about the science of astronomy, because the dissenters were really trying to mix um, science and theology at this point. It's a result of the Enlightenment. But she she gives this idea of kind of abstract speculations about astronomical um, distance and um, vastness and that we lose touch with the ground <laughs> like we literally with with lived experience mm -hmm. and including our lived experience of connection to god it's a disconnect that she's describing yeah all of the world at an arm's length yes and god also at yes an arm's length. yes and she's actually really worried that this could that it could harm 
this kind of heart affection of uh, Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she was, as a result, she was accused of being kind of um, papist or uh, mm. too mystical. Oh, no. Because she's, yeah, <laughs> she's, she's talking about emotions. And se- because they were really striving for very rational theological discourse um, that was also very scientific. Mm-hmm. And again, she says, "I'm not against she, but she wants a balance. She's just asking for a balance of the mind and the heart." Um, My understanding of the difference between Burke and Kant's aesthetics when it comes to sublimity is that uh, it still for Kant, it's still very much an effect that's created in the person. Yes, so even though true, it's, it's viewing nature at a distance, that it's the true. the the effect is still internal. And so I wonder if that's why there's such a, not a compassion towards Kant's ideas over Burke's, but uh, the nuancing of Kantian aesthetics is a little bit more natural. Well, this, like just speaking of astronomy, there's a really beautiful point in observations on the feelings of the beautiful and the sublime where Kant says, um, when we gaze at the lonely moon in the evening, we feel an, we feel a friendship. He uses the word friendship. We feel a friendship for the moon, and this mm-hmm. is the noble sublime. I love I love that moment. It, um, he's being very um, vulnerable. But it's, it's different, very different from critique of judgment, which is later on, almost mm-hmm. thirty years later. This yeah. is young um, Emmanuel Kant. But yeah, when he talks about a friendship for the moon, is similar to Anna Barbold saying, "Can we not mix a warmth of affection with?" this awe and wonder at the vastness of the universe. Is God not in both those things? Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, Kant, so the, the work Immanuel Kant in his observations on the feelings of the beautiful and the sublime overlaps with Schimmelpenning is in his division. He says, yes, there's a terrible sublime, but there's also what he calls the splendid sublime and the noble sublime. And then Schimmelpenning, too, says, yes, we have the terrible sublime, but then there's also the contemplative sublime. So so the young Immanuel Kant saying we feel a friendship for the moon um, on a lonely evening is similar to Schimmelpenning's contemplative mm-hmm. sublime. And there's not really there's not really anything like that in Burke. He, he has this phrase, um, after witnessing something um, startling, we might feel a tranquility tinged no, a terror tinged with tranquility. Terror tinged with, but the terror is always, like, is always present in mm. Burke. But um, so there can't be any type of sublime without no, fear. No, 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 or the threat of pain. Right, <laughs> cheery notion. So yeah. if you think of looking at if at the full moon on a quiet evening, you feel wonder. There's more room for wonder. Mm. Burke argues that the Greek word for wonder always has fear mixed into it. So he, he even goes to the Greek to say we can't have wonder without fear. But I think both Schimmelpenning and Kant say that's wrong. And Schimmelpenning uh, presents the contemplative sublime as a, um, a stage that is a progression past the terrible sublime. So she actually sees it, presents it as a kind of more evolved um, version of sublimity. She prefers that. Yeah. 
it, it seems as if Kant won't entirely be able to come out unscathed, though, mm. with any type of feminist critique. No, no, no. At no. some point. However, Kant does claim that sustained intellectual effort robs yes. women of their beauty, yes. making them objects of cold admiration rather than of love. Yes. I, I don't know that I love that as a, <laughs> no, as a female academic. He, and I know, I know. He's, we shouldn't idealize Emmanuel Kant because he also says at one point that women shouldn't study mathematics because it robs them of their of their beauty. So yeah, so he's making his own dichotomy that there are women that you can love and that there are women that you can respect for their minds, but he doesn't seem to find it overlap with that. Yeah, okay. Yes. 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 <laughs> yeah. So um what's different I believe about Schimmelpenning is that rather than this dichotomy between the sublime and the beautiful there are several types of sublime and they are all a type of beauty. So it's been the kind of the hierarchy um, has been rearranged a it's little just bit, which true. is exciting. It is really interesting. So the beautiful is her overarching category. And then the subsets of the beautiful are the terrible sublime, the contemplative sublime, the sentimental, which matches somewhat to Burke's beautiful. And then the sprightly, which is wit. It's the sprightly. Oh. <laughs> so I like that she adds wit and she puts satire in there. She says Alexander Pope is a good example of the sprightly. And neither, um, well, you could say that Burke writes about wit and satire when he says comedy is beautiful, but his category of the beautiful is so diminishing. It's not the same as the, as the sprightly. He's almost dismissing comedy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's such life in the way that uh, Schimmelpenning describes these types of sublime. Uh, I I mean, she's modifying the categories of Burke, and I haven't read the way Burke describes it, but the passages you include from Schimmelpenning are lovely, and um, that she has examples of sublime sounds, textures, and smells in the way that Burke did. Um, that curry paste and Rhenish wine have a terribly <laughs> uh, terrible sublimity because of their strong flavors. Yeah. So, uh, Greek is a con- uh, Greek language is a contemplative uh, yes. sublime because it has very long round vowels. Yes, so. yes, and then German is a terrible sublime for Schimmelpenny. It is funny. <laughs> <It's laughs> Oh dear, I think I ended up talking about the aesthetics of the German language in my last podcast, so this is apparently now a recurring theme. On the subway on my way here, people were speaking German, two men beside me in the subway, and I I thought, oh, this is appropriate considering I might speak a bit about Immanuel Kant. I wonder how uh, German spoken versus sung would play out in aesthetic categories, because um, most languages have different aesthetics. Like with the French language, uh, when it's sung, there's a completely different way of pronouncing words. No, it's true. And there's some very beautiful, like in this time we're in Advent right now, there are some very beautiful German um, songs for Advent. And then, of course, um, something like Silent Night in the German would be closer to the contemplative sublime than the terrible sublime. So that's a really good point. Um, So Schimmelpenning says something like, Gregorian chant would be the contemplative sublime as a, mm-hmm. as opposed to spoken German that she puts in the terrible sublime. But I do think um, Silent Night in German would fits closer to her contemplative sublime. But she also she also she's so flexible in her in her system. Not only is it not a dichotomy between the sublime and the beautiful, but it's four types of beauty. She makes these little bridging types. She says we can have the sentimental contemplative and something like. Something like Silent Night in the German language that she says is actually a language of the terrible sublime. Maybe that's a little bridge between the terrible and the contemplative mm. sublime. 
Yeah, I, I love that she has like even subsets of her. Yeah, subsets. It has a greater usability than the other yeah. categorizations. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, a classmate of mine here at the institute, uh, Dean, uh, does a little bit of work with media studies, and he was mm-hmm. telling me a while ago about um, one of the philosophers uh, he was reading. It's either Virilio or uh, or Marshall McLuhan mm-hmm. uh, speculating about why it was that the Latin language left Catholic mass. And one uh, idea being that it was the microphone and the amplification that killed it because then you can hear every syllable clearly as opposed to kind of a murmuring effect that kind of rumbles through a cathedral. Um, And, uh, and that, you know, even amplified, not just the change between speaking and singing, but amplification of certain sounds really changes it. You mentioned the difference between Greek and Hebrew poetry and the way in which Greek and Hebrew poetry at mm-hmm. various times crept into the uh, hermeneutics mm-hmm. of uh, these women. And with Hebrew, there's uh, types of meter that have amplification of mm-hmm. sounds and repetition of sounds mm-hmm. uh, and a comparison of that to thunder. Yes, yes. it's um, This has to do with the Hebrew poetics and something called parallelism especially in the Psalms, where the parallelism could be, it could be um, a phrase that is repeated exactly. Um, sometimes that's called synonymous parallelism, or a phrase that is repeated with synonyms for the same words in the next line. Um, but then there's a different kind of parallelism that, he, that Hebrew scholars or biblical um, studies professors will call um, synthetic parallelism and that's where there's in the psalm not only is the phrase repeated but it's built upon but Shimon Penning already in 1815 is talking about this amplifying parallelism and she uses Psalm 8 as her mm-hmm. as her example oh lord oh lord how excellent is thy name in all the earth he said thy glory above the heavens and then all of the ways we can see this glory of God um Often when I talk about the sublime to theologians, they say, oh, that is like the idea of glory. And then they'll talk about Hans Urs von Balthasar and his mm. work on glory. And the word glory is, and this is her example of the contemplative sublime is Psalm 8. So all the ways we can see God's glory, we can see the astronomical imagery when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou visitest him? Um, for thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. So you, I think what Shimon Penning is thinking is how this word glory is there and then the glory is repeated, but it's being amplified as we move, as we move through. And with all of these examples of how we can see God's glory in the universe, um, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passes through the paths of the seas. And then the psalm ends how it began, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. But the phrase is amplified because we've had all these examples of how we see God's glory in the ocean, in human beings, in the moon, in the stars. Again, the astronomy is a theme through the book because people were seeing this as um, evidence of the vastness of the universe, the vastness of God's power. But at the same time, you have people like Herschel. Uh, is in the 18th century who are discovering uh, comets, and so there's actually scientific discoveries. Um, but yeah, um, she, okay, the tie that you're 
that you're drawing out is the idea of the rhythm of the psalm, the rhythm of the parallelism in Hebrew, how that's an amplifying rhythm that amplifies the phrase, how excellent are thy ways in all the earth. And that's why she also says liturgy has the contemplative sublime because of this repetition. Mm-hmm. But if, even if you think of the way um, that the psalms are used litur- liturgically, it is this similar kind of repetitive, um, but very reverential and um, contemplative aesthetic. Yeah, is it Schimmelpenning who mm. maintained that psalms had to be read in community? No, that's Barbald. Barbald. <laughs> it's true. It's true, the oral nature mm. of, of the psalms. And what Barbald was saying is the psalms were not originally composed to be dissected scientifically. And again, she's not anti-science, but, but pure with pure cold reason. Um, is not the way to receive the Psalms, and then to debate right. angrily about their, you know, their attacking a type of scientism that yes, was yeah. yes, she was. She's saying no. The Psalms were um, created to bring people together um, in worship, in affection for each other in the community, and then ultimately that affection moving towards worship of God, a communal worship of God. Yeah, so. It does come back to Barbald and the Psalms. The Psalms are also a theme. And Burke, too. Burke, too, writes about. But but when he quotes the Psalms, it is, again, um, how the Psalms are terrifying. Yeah, cherry-picking and <laughs> leaving out anything about maternal instincts. Yes. Yeah. Whereas if you think of using the Psalms in liturgy, it's not usually a terrifying... We're not in terror with that I'm sure there are ways you could perform them as such, but that's yeah. not normally the... There's a difference between reverence and and terror, and I think that's what's coming out in the noble sublime, the reverence we might feel seeing the moon at night when we're by ourselves, or um, the contemplative sublime of Schimmelpenny with the Hebrew, and then this kind of reverential use of the Psalms in liturgy. It's still sublime rather than beautiful. This is a problem with Burke as he divides... um, he divides affection from respect. We can't have affection for something and respect it at the same time. And another woman, Mary Wollstonecraft, in her vindication of the rights of women, which is mainly about women's right to education, <clears throat> she says, don't we love and revere God at the same time? And that she's, there, she's still, it's also another rebuttal mm-hmm. to work. Yeah, so, yeah. And then also, if we love, the feminine, but we respect the masculine, as Burke is saying. Um, that's and Wollstonecraft is saying, don't we love and respect God at the same time? That's why it's important that the women are bringing the feminine imagery of God from the Bible into their arguments, because doesn't God mix the feminine and the masculine? And mm-hmm. That's why we revere. No, that's not. That's not why. Um, but that's connected to the fact that we revere God and have affection. For God, and then Wollstonecraft says, and therefore for each other, men and women should have both respect and affection for each other. Mm. Whereas Burke is a women respect men, and men love women. Mm. <laughs> Can't think of any problems to that dichotomy yeah, we at all. We should probably leave Burke. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably taking a bashing. Yes. I mean, I'll I'll do this with like an air of thankfulness <laughs> in the sense that, you know, Burke put forward a paradigm and you know other people found something useful in it they they 
added to it, but uh, it's not that he noticed nothing, you know, true or useful about, you know, aesthetics. No. he. What was happening is in the early 18th century, with things like the heroic couplet, the aesthetic, especially in poetry, was more of order. It was kind of orderly and more tidy. And then Burke is saying, um, is, don't we have also an aesthetic response to things that are wild or beyond our control or um, astonishing mm -hmm. to us rather than simply pleasing to us? And I still like that aspect of Burke as the women also were, were being drawn to that, but not, but then adding, adding his, it was still very exclusive the way he was defining it. Yeah. And, uh, not sure how to phrase this question or what it is that I'm asking, but um, there's something also about the way that desire was conceived of in Burke that differs from uh, Kant and then eventually Schimmelpenning as well, um, and about the the role of desire and about where virtues fit in with um, with those categories that he lays out as well. It's true. It's hard. It's like it's less self conscious with Schimmelpenning. Mm -hmm. It's very Burke was a very he was a very young man when he wrote <laughs> this sublime and crazy the origin of Yeah, the problem is the problem is with desire. Like if it's desire for the other and in Burke that's women, the problem is he's essentially arguing you can have the desire for someone who you also have respect. Mm. This is the problem. That's not there at all. In, it's not there in Kant, actually. Except we talked about we talked about his saying about how if women study mathematics, they lose. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like there's actually like very little talk of desire at all in Immanuel Kant. Does, how does desire uh, come through in Schimmelpenning? Then, like, what role does uh, taking pleasure in something? play in its like in our appreciation of it i just feel like it's more natural or it's or get more organic in shimmel penning that um, that they can be that reverence and uh desire. and desire can be matched a little bit more or yeah and definitely okay, in barbald that's definitely the case okay. i would say that's definitely the case in barbald because um because of this idea of the warmth of affection or even the difference between Barbald and Burke is that Barbald uses the word affection and Burble, Burke, sorry, Burke, Burke. Yeah. <laughs> Burke uses the word passion. Barbald is a Presbyterian, doesn't use the word right. I feel like it's yeah. connected to her, to her Presbyterian um, worldview. And with Schimmelpenning, again, yeah, like she'll talk about enjoying that Rhenish wine, right? And right. how the strong taste of the wine... <clears throat> As something of the terrible sublime, and it just seems much more natural, yeah, and um, organic, <clears throat> less self-conscious in right. Schimmelpenning. So it might be hard to make any kind of comparison between them, partially because of the difference in vocabulary, but then also I think it's, the role of pleasure desire is conceived of so differently. I feel like it's almost even theological with with them. So so Burke is writing from Church of England perspective, then Barbald. Presbyterian, and then Schimmelpenning, she was a Quaker who had been baptized Methodist by the time she wrote her mm -hmm. aesthetics. So she, and then she became a Moravian, and then she also had um, these Catholic friends, the Barringtons, a family, who were her neighbors, and she, she writes about them a lot in her autobiography. So 
she is just I feel like she's more free because of these like diversity of the theological groups between which she was moving um and the methodist so she was baptized in 1808 within the methodist church they were known for their kind of they were already kind of charismatic at Mm. that time and so just yeah there's like a freedom with emotions and embodiment that comes from that charismatic interesting yeah and so that's what i'm trying to say with shimla penning it just it's her time period as mm-hmm. well. She, they're, she's coming, it's, you're outside of the Enlightenment by that point, whereas Barbold and Burke are still in the writing from a more Enlightenment right. perspective. I don't, know this, I don't know if I'm dodging this question. It's not something that I've thought about that no, much, no, but okay. it's interesting to well. Burke, Burke with his use of the word passion and his idea that we have passions of fear that which is bigger and stronger than us. People have done psychoanalytic. <laughs> they say the sublime <laughs> is his father, and then the beautiful is his mother. You right. know, and then this passion of love for that which is comforting to us. Yeah. So, um, the psychoanalytic reading doesn't completely work though, because Burke is talking about about desire for women in the beautiful. It's quite clear at mm-hmm. points. So that can't just be about his mother, because if it is about the child Burke and how he viewed his parents, the mother would be bigger than right. <laughs> this weak object of desire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah a lot of a lot of um, gendered analysis has been done. Oh, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. It's it's so <laughs> open to yeah, that kind right. of analysis. Right. Yeah. Not as much with Immanuel Kant, though, and and um, he's not writing about passion. bodies in the same way as Burke's maybe that's what's uh difficult for me mm-hmm. um, not appreciating Kant but mm. uh understanding mm. the way in which Kantian aesthetics are supposed mm-hmm, to work mm-hmm. in everyday experience mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and critique of judgment is very disembodied so that's why it's so fascinating to me that he wrote a book with the word feelings in it in 1763 it's feelings is not a word that's really coming up anymore in critique of judgment Mm -hmm. it's more he's more striving for this like absolutely objective um universal judgment of the sublime and the beautiful he he mentions burke he does mention burke briefly so you so he is consciously building on burke but He's not using words like passions or feelings by that time. But I guess uh, my concerns Mm. or my difficulties with Mm. those two authors is Mm. precisely the same problem that Barbold and Schimmelpenninck are having. Yeah, so one of the differences, you were talking about how the sublime is external for Burke and more internal for Immanuel Kant, and that's really the case in Critique of Judgment. So where he draws on the Burkean sublime, he says... Imagine that you are you see a waterfall and you realize that the physical force of that waterfall could crush you as as a human being and then you are terrified. And so this is where Burke says you shrink into the minuteness of your own being. So he says, Kant says, Yes, you are terrified in a visceral way. But then you realize that your mind, the power of your reason, is greater than even the infinity of the universe. And so you are calm in the superiority of your reason over the waterfall. Mm. It's a very, I don't know, somehow it does seem very masculine, kind of will to power. Um, whereas you're, at that point, 
you are using your reference for God's creation of the waterfall in this mm-hmm. idea that your reason can master it, which would lead to things like harnessing the energy of the waterfall for for energy for human use. I, I guess like maybe there's some utilitarian. It's utilitarian right. that can result from it. I mean, it's also a way to account for the fact that we see these types of mm, terrifying mm, uh, sights and are not mm, entirely crippled by them, that no, there's no, something powerful to our intellect that I allows know, us to true. position ourselves in reference to them and true. keep on living. It's just true. It's true. And that's why there's more room for courage in Manuel Kant than in Burke, because then Kant would say courage arises from that. But it still feels... Um, like it could lead to exploitation of nature, and it's this exertion of the reason over anything physical, um, including kind of like one, one's own body that mm-hmm. in, in critique of judgment, that it's this extreme need to control behind it. Yes. <laughs> So one of the tie-ins I noticed with Schimmelpenning is that her uh, fourfold categorization of the sublime uh, seemed to have a lot of um, relation to the way sublimity is portrayed in Austen, uh, especially with the contemplative sublime and types of friendship and female constancy. I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. It's very true. Okay, so a very good example of this is um, Eleanor Tilney's friendship with Catherine Moreland. So in Jane Austen, female friendships are sometimes satirized, and often um, sisterhood, like actual biological sisterhood, comes across as more constant, mm-hmm. to use your word, um, than non-biological female friendship. But one of the exceptions is Catherine Moreland and Eleanor Tilney in Northanger Abbey. So a lot of the humor in Northanger Abbey comes from this kind of parody of the Burkean sublime, our gothic sublime when Catherine is in Northanger Abbey and there's a thunderstorm outside and then her candle goes out and she's in the dark. Burke talks a lot about darkness being yeah, scary. Just the whole location of the Abbey and all of the action and the novel taking place there. She's laughing at the melodrama of Burke a little bit, and but... She doesn't dismiss the sublime altogether because she has this contemplative sublime. It's when Eleanor Tilney takes Catherine Moreland to walk on a path through Scotch firs. She calls them Scotch firs. And then at, it's very moving. And um, Catherine Moreland sees them as a gloomy, a gloomy path. <laughs> so, so Austin is teasing her a little bit with this gothic language of gloominess. But then as they're walking, Eleanor Tilney says, this was my mother's favorite path. And Schimmel Penink says that um, you can see a landscape. She says you can see a tree and it will look picturesque. There will be nothing awe-inspiring about it. But then you discover that the writer Samuel Johnson had planted that tree. And if you admire Samuel Johnson, as Schimmel Penning did, then you feel this kind of wonder. Oh, the hands of Samuel Johnson planted that tree and and she also talks about the depth of history being sublime so um kind of associative memories can make a place um contemplative can make a place evocative of the contemplative sublime 
once you know the memory tied to the place. And so I think that's what Austin is doing with this mm -hmm. grove of scotch firs that they walk through. It might just look like an ordinary grove of trees, but then when Eleanor Tilney says, this was my mother's favorite walk, and you know that her mother has passed away, and she was close with her mother, and that she used to walk in that path with her mother, it makes it more contemplative symbolic. Mm -hmm. Because it's connected to to death, the death of the mother, but then for Jane Austen, as as an Anglican, also to eternity. So somehow something very earthly connected to the eternal, which comes back to Anna Barbel's idea of the transcendent or the vast and the warmth of affection being connected in a symbolic. So it's her warmth of perfection for her mother the memory of her mother, and then her thought of her mother's death, but the, the, also the idea of eternity is all coming together in this, what could seem like a really ordinary grove of trees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, it doesn't seem coincidental at all, given that mm -hmm. explanation that mm -hmm. so many of the formative emotional moments mm -hmm. uh, to Austin's women mm -hmm. occur while mm -hmm. walking. Yes, There's always true. this tableau of walking. It's true, it's true. It's true, it's true. So, so Elizabeth Bennett, I mean, she walks for for three miles at one point, which is a long way for a woman to walk at the time by herself. And then she, at another point, she's walking for hours. The narrative actually says she walks for hours. Mm -hmm. And it's after she gets Mr. Darcy's letter explaining himself. And so it's emotional, but it's also um, this recollection or like intellectual processing at the same time. Yeah. So it's intellectual, emotional, you could say spiritual as well. I think there's a spirituality to Elizabeth Bennett's walking. Um, so what type of sublime then um, is uh, getting to the Lake District? I know. It's and so, funny. <laughs> so funny. So she's disappointed about Mr. Darcy. And then the gardeners, her aunt and uncle, want to take Elizabeth Bennett to the Lake District. And Elizabeth Bennett has this uh, wonderful line what are men to rocks and mountains i love it and because she's trying to get over her disappointment by throwing herself into the sublime but then they don't make it to the lake district they stop short of the lake district when they arrive at pemberley and then they stop there so austin is saying something elizabeth wants to escape mr darcy by going into the mountains of the lake district but instead, she ends up at Pemberley, and then she's faced by Mr. Darcy. It happens at other points in the novel where she's trying to walk by herself, and she runs into Mr. Darcy. Mm -hmm. But then she's saying, what are men to rocks and mountains? So Austin is playing with this idea of the sublime. She seems to be playing with the idea that the sublime can replace human relationships, mm. and that she has Elizabeth run into Mr. Darcy when she's seeking the sublime. Okay, so another interesting and strange thing that Jane Austen does is she uses adjectives that are sometimes applied to the sublime for Mr. Darcy himself. So he startles people, for example, and Bingley looks up to him with like such reverence, and he's tall and kind of, you know, looming over people. So, um, but I don't think she's trying to make Mr. Darcy sublime. She's play she's playing with this mm -hmm. with this idea of the masculine sublime but also that there's something so distant about attempts to have that masculine sublime where he just doesn't it connect just, with yeah, people it's not working at it's not all working of these parties and you know he's making no <laughs> friends <It's true. laughs> and then mrs bennett just 
Mrs. Bennet isn't in awe of him, which would be if Mrs. Bennet was perceiving him as sublime. She calls him rude. What a rude young man is her response. So, yeah, I don't think he really is. Um, but it's interesting when you start looking at the language and then also the language of the picturesque. So the picturesque is a category that came up that matches a little bit with the sprightly in Shimon Pennick. It came up in the 1790s. And it was um, Uvidel Price trying to find an intermediary between the sublime and the beautiful. It's kind of mixing the sublime and the beautiful. And in some ways, Darcy fits the picturesque mm. more than Capiri sublime. I'm going to have to reread some of these books with oh. a copy of Chanel Pennick's yeah. chart in the other hand. <laughs> It'll be very fruitful. Because the sprightly, I mean, Austen's novels are so witty, so her novels are themselves quite sprightly with exception maybe of Mansfield Park and Persuasion which have a more somber tone and I think mm -hmm. those are the two that for me are closer to the contemplative sublime and have um, heroines who are um, quite serious and can be um, contemplative. And uh, with Anne Elliot and Persuasion how it's her contemplative side mm -hmm. is so misunderstood as yeah. being distant. It's true, even though she's very receptive to um, listening to others. Yeah, like when she goes and visits her sister, she's listening to everybody else's troubles all the time. So she's quiet, but that doesn't mean distant. Yeah, these are Fanny and Anne Elliot are the quietest, I think, of all the Austin heroines. Yeah. Um, but that's why the time with Anne Elliot by the Sea is so interesting when she meets Captain Wentworth's um, friends and, mm -hmm. and they're by the ocean which is this vast sublime landscape but then there's this great amiability and warmth of affection between the officers and Anne Elliot um, admires that and maybe it comes out of some of this what people are perceiving as reserve mm -hmm. she really um, is rejuvenated by that time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah, she's not like, um, she is not walking by herself as much as Elizabeth Bennet, actually. She's more with other people by mm -hmm. the sea. But even uh, that walking still uh, opens her up mm -hmm. a little bit more than a large dinner party does. No, that's true. It's I think it's a huge relief to her to be away um, from the world of her father and even her sister and her in-laws and to be because this is a little community of um, naval officers but um, their world is open to the ocean and to international travel so it's not so claustrophobic as the um, world of Sir Walter Elliot mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. it's more there is a more of a freedom for her I think yeah but you're right it, I um Important that she's walking outside by the ocean during during that time as well. But even when she's inside, she's she would be hearing tales of the ocean mm. <laughs> yes. instead of hearing about lineage or wealth or fashion. <laughs> These other topics that Sir Walter Elliot and her and her um, sister uh, would be talking about with her. 
so in conclusion, I sense that in talking about all of these different female authors uh, in regards to the abolition movement, in regards to their entirely uh, feminine biblical uh, hermeneutics, that there is a lesson to be learned about where we look for voices of minorities in literary history. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the historical method that shaped writing this book? Maybe some of the difficulties in finding uh, philosophical aesthetics from these literary uh, moments, or some of the the pleasures or uh, interesting kind of side effects that arose from that type of historical method. It's um, it's very interesting to be asked this question as we're sitting here in Toronto because um, the roots of this historiography or historical method come from my graduate studies at the University of Toronto and um, some forms of critical theory tied to history that I encountered. So two of them are new historicism, something called new historicism, and something called micro history. So new historicism, um, my best example is a book by John Barrow. It's called John Clare and the Sense of Place. This is an, an old book now. It's from the 1970s, but it still was very formative. And John Clare was an agricultural laborer in England who also wrote about the land and the animals that he saw in the land. And that's what Barrow is calling his sense of place. And in this really brilliant book, John Clare and the Sense of Place, Barrow says, um, yes, we have the poems like Tintern Abbey by Wordsworth or Aeolian um, Harp by Coleridge, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Coleridge, describing nature at this time. But what about somebody who actually lived close to the land? How are they going to see the land um, maybe more realistically, more um, uh, physically, more tied to the everyday? And so um, this is what new historicism does. It takes like a it's maybe a form of intellectual history where it takes an idea like the beautiful or landscape aesthetics and it says, how do we see that idea from a new lens if we're looking at it through somebody who had a very different experience? And its its roots are Marxist, this book. It's, it's the labor. How does the labor see the land as opposed to Wordsworth who could live in London and then, oh, go out to the Lake District, and then move kind of back and forth between the urban, sophisticated space, whereas John Clare is like working in the land and always um, present with the land. So um, when I read that book, John Clare and the Sense of Place, as a graduate student at U of T, I was like, and what about women? <laughs> so, so I thought there must have been women writing about nature and the landscape at this time in history, and that's how I started digging. Um, I already had a collection of 18th century women poets that I had bought for a class at the University of Alberta. So I just started looking in those poems specifically for landscape and nature descriptions. And that's how I hit the sublime. And that's when I found this crazy gendered mm. dichotomy in uh, in birth. So my question when I read John Clare in the sense of place was, um, can we do the same for women poets? Is the land of England going to look different from a woman's eyes. But then I found people like Helmary Williams writing poems like Peru 
where she tries to write about the Andes um, and describe that uh, mountainous landscape through her perspective uh, in 1784. So um, new historicism was one starting point, but also this idea of microhistory, which is tied to this the idea of the history of the everyday life. So there's a book by a man named Michel de Certeau. He's responding to Michel Foucault. So he he knew Foucault's work, and then he writes this practice of everyday life. And he is responding to Foucault's idea of the panopticon or surveillance. And he's saying, but what about the everyday lives of kind of small, ordinary people that work underneath that, that surveillance? And so that's behind my idea of the tactics of the women and how they're describing their world underneath these overarching ideas of, of um, the men. So, yeah, that could be called micro microhistory. Um, and then, actually going back to my undergrad, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own is behind this book. And in A Room of One's Own, first she tries to go into a library um, in a place that is kind of an amalgamation of Oxford and Cambridge. It's it's not like an actual university, but it's just an amalgamation of that system. And she's blocked as a woman because she doesn't have an escort to get into the library. And then eventually she starts looking at library shelves and she sees how many books are written about uh, men's literary history. And then just a few times, this is a 1920, but this is actually not that long ago, a few books written about women's literary history. And so I think A Room of One's Own didn't necessarily provide me with a method, but it provided me, that image provided me with motivation for what I was doing. And also in the room of one's own, she says, well, wouldn't history look different if instead of women looking at men all the time, a woman looked at another woman? And we think of how women saw each other in history. So that definitely um, motivated me to look for uh, the women referring to each other's work, which they did. So... Um, Shimmel Penning, for example, in her autobiography, describes spending a month with Anna Barbold. She was actually mentored by Anna Barbold. So, so Virginia Woolf in the 1920s was saying, what if we imagine women actually seeing each other and being influenced by each other instead of just being somehow derivative of men's writing, which would be the stereotype? And Woolf is saying, imagine this, but actually it was happening in the 18th century when you dig. So um, the ple- okay, one of the great pleasures for me would be finding those concrete ties between the women writers. Because it's one thing to have a book with individual chapters on different women writers, but it's another thing to find out that they were actually reading each other's work, footnoting each other's work. Schimmelpenning refers to both Anna Barbold and another uh, Presbyterian writer, Joanna Bailey, explicitly in her work, like with great respect by 1815. So, um, yeah, that is a... Another thing, there there's a, a study center called Chotten House Library. It's a library of 17th and 18th century women's um, rare books and some manuscripts. There's a manuscript by Jane Austen there. <laughs> yes. Um, and in Chotten House, I called up an uh, Anglican uh, woman's collection of poetry, um, Alicia Hemmings, her first collection of poems. And then I found Schimmelpenning's sister's name handwritten in the book. So, wow. yes. <laughs> So those are moments of real pleasure um, to because you it is archaeological. People use the metaphor of archaeology for mm-hmm. work on 
her work basically work on women writers before Jane Austen. People who use this image of archaeology that you're that you're digging up. So people have used that for the digging up of the works by women, but I think you can use that same image for the digging up of the connections between um, the women writers and their letters also. And people are finding these more and more. But for me, it does come back to the Virginia Woolf's idea of women actually seeing other women, not just looking to men for either their models of their work or for <laughs> yeah, so, so women could be approving of each other's work, even in um, Shimon Penning does this, even in the introduction to her theory on the classification of beauty and deformity, she explicitly references um, Joanna Bailey's tragic genius. She calls it. Bailey references Barbald's um, work in a footnote to one of her later poems. So it's hard to find these connections. It's much harder than something like Wordsworth, William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. They had this long friendship. Mm -hmm. We have correspondence between yeah. them. But because it's so difficult, that's why it's so pleasurable to find these little hidden um, connections. Yeah. Um, danger. You also have the. You also see the dangers of the mm -hmm. historical method. I was thinking. I was reflecting on that. To to be honest, you have so much hope in finding this hidden history of uh, women's philosophical ideas or the women uh, influencing um, the development of a concept like the sublime, the danger is to project that onto the primary sources so that you yeah. see what you want to see. Because you, you have, to use your word, such a desire to, to see that they were empathetic. The truth is they were influencing. Um, William Wordsworth's first published poem was called On Seeing Miss Helen Rye Williams' Weep and Tale of Distress. It was a little sonnet, and it was his first published poem. Yeah, so he was influenced by her. He obviously knew her work, or he wouldn't have written that that sonnet. So this is the balance. Um, checking your own desire to... Um, you're, you have a concern that you want to make the women more influential than they actually were. But then there is... But then you... you you can't check that desire so much that you don't acknowledge this. Because yeah. you can see all these signs of life and the interaction of these scholars. Yeah, they the obviously community. inspired each other yeah. and motivated each other. Yes. Yeah. So, to keep going. <laughs> against against discouraging odds. So, um, Anna, or not Anna Barbell, Joanna Bailey, she wrote these hymns for the Scottish Church. They were commissioned by the Scottish Church, and then they, after she wrote them, they were not published. And then she published them in her collection, Fugitive Verses. And I think that's a very poignant title, Fugitive Verses. And then once she publishes them in her own collection, that's where she has this footnote to Anna Barbell to mm. one of her, her poems. So um, they did face great discouragement, and then that's why they had to bolster each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I put that in as kind of a wild card question at the end of our interview, and I think that was a wonderful <laughs> response. Yeah. No, we've covered such a gamut mm -hmm. of topics today. Thank mm -hmm. you so much, Natasha, for coming to talk with me. Mm. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay, thank you for having me. Hope it hasn't been so terrible. No, it was fun, actually. Your, like, your questions really did push me more than the other interview questions I or especially the methodology
The composing of Veiled Intent has been a process of recovery. It began as an attempt to recover and redeem the lost. To recover and redeem the lost voices of dissenting women exegetes hidden discreetly between the lines of British poetry and pages of aesthetic philosophy published in the long 18th century. This process of recovery and redemption has unearthed connections with women writers from other nations, such as Gambia and France, including African-American poet Phyllis Wheatley and the French Cistercian nuns of 17th century Port Royal. Though it began as a study of dissenting Presbyterian and Moravian women, the lines of influence traced by Veiled Intent stretch out to include sympathetic Church of England poets such as Hannah Moore and Felicia Hemmings, as well as Congregationalists in Boston and Catholics in Bristol, Port Royal, and South America. It concludes on a resoundingly ecumenical note. You've been listening to Critical Faith, a podcast sponsored by the Centre for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, Ontario. Find out more about our programs and goings-on at the Institute website, icscanada.edu. Please direct your questions and comments about this or any episode of our podcast to the email criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. Additionally, follow us on Facebook or leave us an iTunes review. Thank you for your support of our podcast so far. I hope you had a blessed Christmas season. May Christ dwell richly in your hearts and be near to you and your loved ones in this new year.